You know, all semester long, uh, we're looking at the stories that Jesus told. Uh, we started this semester with uh, the story of a good sower uh, sowing good seed. Um, story, really, of a good world that's gone bad. God sowed good seed, right? God made a good world. But in the dark of night, while his men were sleeping, uh, a bad snower snuck into the field, and he sowed uh, wheat among the weeds. Jesus explained, right, an enemy has done this. Right? The devil has broken uh, God's good world, uh, and we've all played our part too. But instead of junking the world, right, instead of like crumpling it up like a piece of paper and throwing it uh, in the trash can, uh, God has remained committed to this world, uh, and he's remained committed to us. He's gotten more involved, right? not less. God left the safety of heaven uh, for the sufferings of earth. Right? He became a human being. And I know that's a radical claim, right? God becoming a human being, but that is the claim that is at the very heart uh, of Christianity, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his son into it, right? Jesus on a rescue mission to seek and save the lost, right? Jesus, the good sower, preaching good news far and wide. And Jesus, the good shepherd, uh, searching for lost sheep. Jesus, right, the good elder brother, who says, if you've seen me, You know what my father is like. You know what his heart is like. Well, as we get ready to hear tonight's story, I want us to sort of stretch out uh, our imaginations. I want us to warm them up just a little bit. Okay, I want you to imagine that the year is 1943. I want you to imagine uh, that you're in France, all right? You're living in enemy-occupied France, uh, and it's the height. Uh, of World War II. Hey, Shira. Okay, the German war machine by 1943, it's completely taken over, right, the whole of Europe. And our home, right, our beautiful home in France, which was once beautiful, right, it's now scarred by the horrors of war. And people are still getting married, right, they're still having kids, right, music is still being written, right, it's not all awful. But of course, it's not all awesome either because bombs are dropping and children are dying Right, and Jews are being taken to concentration camps. Well, one day a paratrooper right, appears in the sky, and he lands in your town. He lands in our town. Right? And while he's alone, he's not, right, because he's backed by like, all of these forces on the other side of the ocean. Okay, but this paratrooper who lands in your town, he starts meeting with you and with me in secret. He starts gathering townsfolk. And he's organizing and he's creating a small band of resistance, right? A bunch of citizen soldiers who are going to fight the Nazis. And after he's organized and mobilized a small group of citizen soldiers in our town, he goes to the next town and does the same thing, right? He talks with them and he organizes them and he mobilizes them. And then he goes to the next town and does the same. And the next town and the next town. And then he disappears, right? We lose trace of him. But he says that he's going to come back. And when he does, right... He's going to bring a whole lot more soldiers with him. Y'all, in some ways, this is kind of what God has done. Okay, the Son of God leaving heaven, right? The Son of God descending on our earth. The Son of God landing in the midst of enemy-occupied territory. And because of his preaching and teaching and others following his lead, little pockets of resistance have sprouted up here and there and everywhere. 
Okay, Jesus bringing the kingdom of God to people living behind enemy lines. Jesus creating bands of resistance. Right, Jesus making us to be salt and light in a dark and corrupted world. That's what he's doing. Okay, that's what he's been doing. Right, and he wants you and me to be a part of it. He wants us to join, right? The question is, is how do we do that? Like, how do we enlist or join? Like, how do we become a part of God's inbreaking kingdom? Tonight's story really shows us how. Okay, the, the story that Jesus tells us tonight shows us how. And in some ways, like, joining this is the easiest thing and it's the hardest thing to do. It's the easiest and hardest thing to do. So let's read, right? Let's hear uh, the story that Jesus has to tell. So that story comes from Luke 18, uh, and it can be found in verses 9 through 14. So Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Jesus, we're thankful that you told us a story. Uh, I pray you would teach us now, uh, by your word, by your spirit, what exactly it is you want us to hear tonight. And I pray that in hearing it, uh, we would be changed uh, from the inside out. Uh, We ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, again, this question that I want us to bring uh, to the story uh, is really how do we be a part of God's movement? You know, how do we be a part of his inbreaking kingdom? Well, Jesus tells us in the story in so many words that the way to do that, like the way in, is for us to get low. Like humility is the door uh, into God's kingdom. Okay, that's really the main point, right? Humility is the door uh, into God's kingdom. You've all seen the amusement park signs, right? Like you go and it says you've got to be this high like to ride. Well, in some ways, this is the exact opposite of that, right? This is like you have to be this low, right, to get in. You've got to be this low like to get on the ride. Today, Jesus, right, in the story he, he tells, he introduces us to two sort of options, to two people, right? One, a Pharisee, uh, one, a tax collector. One, who's a man who's really puffed up, like who's really proud, kind of high in the sky. Uh, And the other person who is really uh, humble, who in some ways is deflated, right? Who's low to the ground. One is in, the other is out, and it's not what you expect. Let's let's start with the first one, right? Uh, The Pharisee. The preface, right, for tonight's story really comes in verse 9. Like Jesus is telling this story because there are a bunch of people who are self-congratulatory, right? They're self-satisfied. They're trusting in themselves, and they think that God is going to approve of them because of their moral superiority, 
right? They're kind of patting themselves on the back, like, we're awesome, right? That's kind of the attitude. All the while, these are people who, while they're patting themselves on the back, they're looking down on everybody else with contempt. Ugh, right? So Jesus tells them this story, right? And the story starts like this, right? Two men went up into the temple to pray, right? One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee's standing by himself, and he's praying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, like maybe motioning like, and pointing to the, the guy who's standing off there in the distance. He goes on, right? I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. It's worth asking, like, who are the Pharisees? When Jesus told the story, everybody knew who these people were. Okay, these were the guys who kept all the rules. Uh, they, these are the ones who did everything by the book. Um, they kept kosher, and they kept their distance, right, from people who were not like them. And in verse 11, right, he's standing by himself, and he's praying. But what kind of prayer is this? I mean, as you look at it, right, as you hear it, what's exactly, like, what, did, what is he really saying? Like, what is he really doing? I mean, in this prayer, is the Pharisee adoring God in any way? Is he confessing sin? Like, is he asking God for anything? You might think, you might be tricked into thinking, oh, this is a prayer of thanksgiving because it starts with thanks. Right? But he really doesn't thank God for anything uh, that God does, right? In some ways, he thanks God for everything that he isn't, like he himself. I'm grateful that I'm not like this person. I'm grateful, <laughs> right, uh, for how awesome I am. Like he's not talking about God's goodness or generosity. He's really emphasizing his own goodness and generosity. Do you notice that? He's not talking about how great God is. He's talking about how good he himself is. And he's not talking about God's generosity. He's talking about all the, the, the tithes that he's giving. Right? This is really has nothing to do about God. It has everything to do with himself. Look at me. Look how awesome I am. You know, it's funny, as I was writing the sermon and thinking about this Pharisee praying this prayer, all I could think about was, like, Charlie Sheen uh, in that interview just being like, uh, winning. <laughs> right? That's kind of, like, that's kind of the attitude. He just thinks he's winning. Right? He just thinks that he's better. Well, why do we do this? Okay, because in some ways, it's not just the Pharisee who compares himself to others and makes himself look good. Like, we all do this to some extent. Like, why? Why do we compare ourselves to others? I mean, reason will say, like, we do it because we want to make ourselves look good, right? which is true, but it only begs the question, why do we feel the need uh, to look good? And I think at root, there's probably two issues at play. I mean, the first, I think, is that we all have this innate sense that we, are, we were made to be good, and we were really made to love but we're not good at being good. And we're not really good at loving others. We all sense that while we were made to be like this, while we were made to do this, something is off. Like something doesn't work right inside of us. And this, turn, this in turn, right, like that sense that I'm not okay, that creates all sorts of shame and guilt that we are trying to hide. And this is true of you, this is true of me. 
I think the second reason why we compare ourselves and why we feel the need to really look good is because deep down inside, every one of us wants to be accepted. Like, we all want to be approved. And we all want to experience love and acceptance and approval from others, whether that's God or somebody else. I mean, both of these things are true. The problem with the Pharisee is the way that he goes about dealing with his sense of shame and the way that he goes about trying to win approval uh, is that the way that he does it, it's all wrong. Like, it's really self-destructive and it's really self-defeating. He thinks that in order to mitigate shame, in order to get approval, he's got to try harder, he's got to jump higher, he's got to be better. Better than I am, better than everybody else, right? I've got to be perfect. That is the only way I can sort of silence the criticism, the nagging feeling that I'm not okay, right? You're like, oh, yes, I am, look, right? Straight A's, Dean's List, right? Honor Society, starting on the varsity team, right? Like, I'm, I'm all right. And we use the exact same things, right, to win other people's approval. Right, but this sort of thirst for perfection, sort of this striving uh, for perfection, it's not a solution. As I said, it's self-destructive, it's self-defeating. Right, in her book, which is excellent, um, it's called Daring Greatly, Brene Brown writes, perfectionism is a defensive move. It's the belief that if we do things perfectly and if we look perfect, we can minimize or avoid the pain of blame, judgment, and shame. I love what she writes here. Perfectionism is a 20-ton shield that we lug around thinking it will protect us when, in fact, it's the thing that's really preventing us from being seen. Right? The thing that we think is going to protect us, it actually prevents us from being seen and really known, right, and really loved, which, as I mentioned to you, is the thing that we're really after, right? It's what makes it self-defeating. Ultimately, right, perfectionism is pretense. It's pretense because nobody is perfect, and it's pretense because it's not real. It's not the real you, right? It's a mask. Like, you're wearing a mask of perfectionism. And like all masks, this mask is suffocating. It's suffocating. And it's creating distance between you and everybody else around you. And you see this in the story that Jesus tells. Okay, the Pharisee is standing far off from the tax collector. Okay, his perfectionism, which is, is sort of twisted in on itself and has become pride... It not only has created emotional distance, like between him and the tax collector, it's not only made it hard for him to empathize, right, with somebody who's really not that different from him, who's also a broken sinner. His perfectionism has not only created emotional distance, it's actually created physical distance. Like there's a physical barrier now where he doesn't even want to be seen with the likes of that person. And not only that, it's created distance between him and God. And why is that? Well, it's because the Pharisee refuses, right, to admit, to admit weakness, right? The Pharisee refuses to admit that he is a needy person too, that he makes mistakes, right? Right, in his mind, he's not sick, 
right? He's doing just fine. He's perfectly fine, right? That's the sick one, right? I don't need any help. Send the doctor to that guy, right? Like, that's the attitude. Yo, I want you to imagine uh, Jesus has invited us all to dinner, okay? And for this dinner, Jesus has pulled out all the stops. I mean, he's prepared for us this amazing five-course meal. It's the kind of meal I know, uh, like Will, uh, is, uh, he loves food, right? We, we, we have bonded over this. Uh, he turned me on to the show um, by, what's his name? Um, cooked. Michael Pollan. Michael Pollan. Thank you very much. You watch the show, Michael Pollan is eating this food, like, and you're just like, oh my gosh, I wish I was there. It's that kind of meal, but only better, because Jesus is like cooking it, not Michael Pollan. And Michael Pollan's like a first-rate chef, right? But Jesus has created this amazing meal. And here's the thing. We're all invited. Like, we all get to go. The reason why you and I want to go is because, look, we're all hungry. Like, every single one of us is hungry. We all lack. Like, we all have hunger pains. Like, we all have this pit in our stomach that's not going to go away. And Jesus is saying, I want to fill that up. Right, come and eat with me. But here's the condition. There's no adult table and kids table at this meal. Okay? There's just one table. And that means that young and old, like rich and poor, black and white, Pharisee and tax collector, all eat the same food and we all eat it together. That's the rule. And for the Pharisee, that's a deal breaker. Because what that means is, I'm just like everybody else. What that means is, I'm associated with people I think I'm better than. Right? I've never associated with. And because the Pharisee is someone who has built his identity, he really has built his identity on being up here, Right and being better than everybody else, he refuses this amazing meal because he refuses to be seen and to associate with everybody down here. And the humble get fed. And the perfectionists, right? The proud and the Pharisees, they starve. And this is tragic. But Jesus says this is the way it is. And it has been and will continue to be. The humble are exalted and the exalted are humbled. The insiders are out and the outsiders are in. This is the way it works. You see, all you need is need. Something we talked about last week. All you need is need. But the Pharisees of the world have convinced themselves that they don't need anything. They're doing just fine. And because they don't need anything, they don't ask for anything. And because they don't ask for anything, they don't get anything. They receive nothing. Right. I want you to imagine just one more thing, also related to food, right? Before we go on and we look at the tax collector. Okay, I want you to imagine that there are two apple carts. Okay? On one apple cart, uh, well, one apple cart is labeled good, right? And the other apple cart is labeled bad. The good apples, right, on the good cart, they get to go to a good home. Right? But the, the bad ones are all going to be thrown away. 
Now on this apple cart marked bad, there are obviously, right, some apples that are worse than others, right? There is a spectrum, right? Some of the apples on the bad cart have just a couple dents and bruises here and there. Others are pretty rotten, right? Apple pus, right, is coming out of them, like they're really mushy and kind of spoiled. But the dented ones have no advantage over the rotten, mushy ones, right? Because in the end, they're all banged up and they're all going to be thrown out. You following with me? Now, I want you to imagine that on top of this pile of bad apples, there's one apple that is looking down on all the others. And this apple thinks he is so much better than everybody else. Right? He's bragging like, ooh, look at me, right? Like, I'm an awesome apple. And yeah, these apples talk, which is kind of cool, right? But anyway, this apple thinks that he's so much better looking than all those apples on the bottom. Uh, and it's true, right? By comparison, right, he is better looking. But the thing is, he's still in the bad cart. He's destined for the compost just like the rest. He just doesn't realize it. And he doesn't realize it because he's spending all of his time comparing himself to all the other bad apples. He's not looking at all the good apples over there. He's just focused on all the other ones around him that are less than him. And so on and on he goes, convinced that he's the good one in the bunch, convinced that he is better than everybody else. But if you look closely and if you listen closely, there is this bad, mushy apple on the very bottom of this pile. And this apple has no pride. He knows he's rotten. Right? He knows he's bad. Right? He knows he's mushy. I mean, shoot, he like had a worm crawl in and out of him just last week. But this apple, for all of his flaws, wishes it were otherwise. And he wishes he could go right to that nice man's house. Well, one day, right, like this nice man is walking by, and when he does, this apple on the bottom uh, is, it cries out to this man, right, help me. Like, can I please go home with you? Right, the other apple on the top is going, you know, bragging on and on and on about how awesome he is. But this one on the bottom says to the nice man, look, I know I'm not very good or good looking, but would you please, please, please take me home with you? So the nice man hears his cries and he has compassion on this apple and he says, okay. And he scoops up this rotten apple and he puts it on the pile with all the other perfect apples and he goes home, right? But the other one keeps yapping away and it's thrown out, right? And surely had that one asked, like, would you take me home with you? He would have gone, but because he didn't ask, he did. He stays there, right? And he's thrown out. You can tell I've got a one-year-old kid, right? Like, I'm like trying to illustrate this, and I don't mean to insult you, right, with the story about talking apples, but you understand. I see some of you laughing, right? And it is kind of a funny story, right? Like, but this is kind of what Jesus is driving, right? If Jesus were telling the story, he might say, look, the crappy apple got to go, huh? Right, the crappy apple was justified. And the one that thought he was better than everybody else got thrown out. Right, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Okay. This brings us to the second person in the story, okay, the tax collector. Okay, we're introduced to the tax collector in verse 13. And there he is, right? He's standing far off. His head is hanging low. He's not looking up. He's not looking around. Right? He's not comparing himself to other people. 
Right? He's, he's looking down. And he's coming to the presence of a perfect and perfectly good God. You could say he's standing in the light. Uh, and in the light, he is keenly aware uh, of his imperfections. Or he is not coming into the presence of God like the Pharisee, right, with his resumes and his list of accomplishments and like his trophy case. He's not doing that. I mean, to do that would be, he's like, he reasons, right? Like, I'm not going to be like some guy who, like, goes up to uh, Cristiano Ronaldo with, like, some trophy that I got uh, when I played mini kicks, you know, as if that was going to impress him, right? Or he's not going, like, he's like, I'm not like some guy who's going to go up to LeBron James with, like, this little trophy that I got when I was a mini dribbler, right? He's like, forget that. Like, that's ridiculous. That's absurd, Right? So he leaves the trophies at home. He comes empty-handed. And he doesn't boast. He doesn't brag. He doesn't try to convince God how awesome he is. Rather, he tells the truth. He says, God, I've blown it. I don't deserve to be here. You would be well within your rights to kick me out. Like That would be perfectly legitimate. That would be perfectly fair. But I'm asking you, would you please be merciful to me? And kind of like the like that crappy apple. Will you please, please, please take me home? You see, he knows his need. He asks for mercy. And here's the deal. Because he asks for it, he gets it. The God he's talking to is a merciful God. He is compassionate. Like we've seen that all semester long. And because he asks for it, he receives it. And he gets in. So Jesus says, this is the man who goes to his house justified rather than the other. Not the one who is boasting, right? The one who is begging. Right, he's in. What does that word mean? Right, justified. You know, justification is the language. Uh, it's it's language uh, that's really borrowed from the law courts. Okay, to be justified means to to be declared innocent. To like in some ways to be declared all right. Like you are all right. And that is what Jesus says is true of the tax collector. Like he is justified. He's declared okay. The Bible says that none of us, right, none of us is justified uh, by our own good works. Very clearly, like very emphatically, the Bible says that none of us is righteous. That all of us, right, are sinners. Even the Pharisees and the perfectionists in in the world, right, the ones who pride themselves in keeping all the rules, right, they're the dented up apples, right, on the bad apple cart. They might not be as bad as everybody else, but they're still broken. And if we insist on being judged by our own performance, if we insist on being judged by, on our own looks, as it were, like, we will all fail and we will all fall short. This is true of everybody. But the Bible says God has done something for us in the person of Jesus to make people like you, people like me, okay. Right? To make us all right. To justify us. If somebody comes and smashes your car, right, with a baseball bat, that would stink, right? Like, that would suck. 
in order to fix your car, right, the one that's been smashed, like somebody's got to pay for it. And either that somebody is you or it's the person who broke it. Somebody's got to pay. I mean, that really is the language of justice, is it not? Like, if you break it, you got to buy it. That's fair. Well, the Bible says, you've broken everything. Like, you've kind of taken the baseball bat to God's good world. You've broken God's heart. You've broken other people. You've broken this planet. And we've all done this in ways great and small. Some, okay, I get it, right, are worse than others, right? But we're all on the bad cart. Like, we've all broken it, okay? But here's the deal. Even though we have broken it, God says, I will buy it. I'll pay for it. You don't have to. I'll do it for you. And the Bible says that the wages of sin, like the cost of breaking all of these things, it's death. And the Bible says what's so special is that Jesus on the cross is saying, I will pay that penalty in your stead. Like God is fully just. He's not going to be like, whatever, I was just kidding about the justice part. And he's like, I'm I'm dead serious. Like, If you break it, somebody does have to pay for it, but that somebody will be me. God is absolutely committed to his justice. Like he is going to punish sin. But he's also absolutely loving. Saying, I will pay it in your stead. I will die so you don't have to. And that's really like the glory of the cross. It's like, why do people wear crosses around their necks and like sing songs? Like, why do we sing songs about the cross and the blood of Jesus? Like, that sounds so morbid. And like, yeah. It certainly seems that way. Like, But why that is such great news is because we're saying that, yeah, God is doing something for us there. He's making it okay for bad apples to get to go to the nice man's house. Like, to continue to allude to that silly illustration, right? <laughs> That's why we sing about it. It's, it's amazing. The thing is that Jesus didn't just take the penalty for our sins. Like, he lived a perfect life on our behalf, too. And this is really, I think, really important. Because you see, like, we give Jesus our sins, and he gives us his perfection. That's the trade. What is faith? Well, faith is seeing, it's trusting that that transaction has actually taken place at the cross. Faith is believing that, in trusting Jesus' words, that what's happening there is God is taking my sins so that I can be forgiven. Like, I believe that is true. And it's trusting it. Faith is trusting, like, that not only is what's happening, but that's what I need. Like, I need somebody to die for me. I need Jesus to go to the cross so I don't have to. Like, I need him to die so that I can live. Like, faith is believing that. I like what somebody said. Faith is the empty hands receiving what God is freely offering. Right? Which is forgiveness. Right? Acceptance. Approval. Love. All those things that you want. Right? but he's giving it to you for free. He's like, you don't have to be perfect. I've done that for you. I've done it for you. 
And here you go. It's yours. Take it. Receive it. Live in light of it. Enjoy it. Stop lugging that 20-ton shield around that is separating you from everybody else and separating you from me. Like, that's pointless. Stop doing that. Right? If you insist on being judged by your own performance, right, your own shoddy record, your subpar perfection, you will fail. And you will be left out. But if you are willing to humble, if you are willing to humble yourself, right, to get in touch with your need, to recognize that you do come to God empty-handed, right, he's not impressed with your mini-kicks trophy, right, your mini-dribblers trophy, like, if you realize, like, that's stupid and you let that go and you come to him empty-handed, I promise you, you will not leave empty-handed. You will leave full, filled to the brim. You will receive mercy. You will receive Jesus' perfect record. You will receive his righteousness. You can enter in. And you can be part, right, of this movement. Like this inbreaking kingdom. Like I said, this is the hardest and it's the easiest thing to do. Right? It's easy because all you need is need, right? All you need to do is ask. All you need to do is be willing to receive what's being freely offered you. But what makes that hard is you've got to let go of your own righteousness. What makes this hard is that this levels the playing field. Do you realize that? Like if you receive what God is offering, you cannot boast any more about how awesome you are. Like this humbles you you realize I'm no better than anybody else. Like, I'm just like a tax collector. Like, I need the same mercy that he needs. Right? And trust me, so that, that makes people, there are people who are like, I, I don't want to do that. That's too much. Right? They don't want to swallow their pride. But Jesus is saying, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Like, you will be but everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Look, there are people, and and I know people in this room, right, who think that they are righteous, that think that they are perfect, who treat people with contempt, who look down on them. I'm not pointing the finger at you. In some ways, I'm saying, like, that's in me too, okay? But here's the thing. Jesus wants to break me of that. He wants to break you of that. He wants us to enjoy the feast that he has to offer. The door to the kingdom is down here. It's not up here. And it's open to all. But in order to get in, you got to get low. Right? All you need is need. You know, all you need is Jesus. Well, we can pray.